This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. My name is Justice Almeida. Today we will be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 which can be found on page 812 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All right, good morning, everybody. Hey, if I haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. It's kind of a big day, um, so if you've not been around or if you're brand new, uh, today our church actually meets to vote on changing our name. Uh, so for more than 60 years, we've been the Leewood Baptist Church in this place, and uh, today we make a decision to not change who we are, not change our mission, not uh, get better, not try harder, not be more relevant, um, but, but maybe have a name that captures uh, who we are and what we value and um, what we've always been about, maybe a little more accurately, and, and we're voting on whether or not to change our name to Hope Community Church, which is by definition and design fairly simple, so that what people hear in the name of our church um, points them straight to Jesus. And so our hope is that um, that becomes a rally cry for us. And what I love is that it's not a new rally cry for us. And so I woke up this morning and uh, like, uh, I know this is happening. I'm the one who's like directing this. And it felt fairly anticlimactic, to be honest. And I know as I said, some of you guys are like dying inside. You're going, it's not anticlimactic at all. This is like the worst thing ever. But um, it, uh, it's felt like just like natural. It's felt normal because we're not changing our church. We're not Um, making us somebody new. We're not stopping something that we were and starting to be something different. And so it just feels like the natural progression. And if you're brand new here, maybe the first time you hear about it, but our members have been talking about this for more than a decade and in a focused way this last year for quite a while. And we've had taken time to pray and to discuss and decide. And um, it feels like we're at this spot now where we're ready to jump. And so after the service, we'll just gather together and and we'll pray. And it could be like a four-minute meeting. It could be like a really fast meeting. Uh, And I want to say that because I'm really hopeful and um, we're not putting all of our stock and our mission in this name change. Uh, So if we don't change our name, in some sense, like nothing changes. We just keep going. And if we change our name, not a whole lot changes except some outward signing and our business cards and our website. And then we just kind of keep going. And so uh, far from like a running up in the aisles and rallying everybody, I just simply wanted to like to settle us and say, hey, we're in a spot where God has done a lot of deep work in our hearts and it uh, feels appropriate to match in our name what he's been doing inside of us for, for a number of decades. Now, let me say, as I say that, 
I realize there are folks who have like bled and sacrificed and given a lot for this place. And so when I say nothing's really changing, you, you have a hard time kind of receiving that because it feels like a lot of things have changed. Lots of it that you're thankful for and some of it that you wish was probably a little bit different. And you're coming to a spot now where this place where you've gathered for um, some of you six decades. You're at a place now where you go, maybe, maybe I come back in a couple of weeks and there's a different name on it. And um, what are we going to call ourselves? And is it okay if I call it Hope Leewood Baptist Church? And what do I do in those spaces? And the answer is fine. That's great. Do whatever you want to do. That's great. Um, but, but I want to just appreciate what that means for those of you specifically who have been here for a really long time, who have sacrificed and given and served and uh, you have done a work here that's honored Jesus in such a way that actually uh, it's a beautiful thing that I don't think we're changing who we are. We're simply going forward in the legacy that you've already established. So for us to move forward doesn't mean we're saying um, goodbye or uh, diminishing something of the past. We're simply taking a step towards the direction we feel like God is leading us. And that we can even do that is credit to your legacy. That there's something here that we could call different means that you have been faithful and God has used you. You've been committed to proclaiming hope. You've actually engaged in transformation in our community for a really, really, really long time. And so that there's a physical space here, that there's a, a spiritual community here, uh, is something that God has done through your labors and efforts. And so I just want to honor you and say thank you. Uh, and I realize this decision in a lot of ways has like affected you more than anybody else. Um, and I've really appreciated in our conversations the ways you have been honest about tensions and questions that you've had. And the repeated refrain I hear from you is, hey, and I know like it's okay to go forward. I know that I'm not the target audience. I know that we're trying to reach people that aren't already here. And I love the spirit of that. I was told one of our members this week, it feels like the way the scriptures talk about honoring older uh, brothers and sisters and treating them like fathers and mothers. And you're embodying a maturity and a charity and a grace that says, hey, I want to be about somebody else, not just myself, which I love that we have 80-year-olds who are saying, hey, let's be about somebody else besides me. And, and that's not new either. That's been an ethos and a spirit that's been here for a really long time. And so I want to just thank you for that. And that's not to tell you that you can't vote no. Dude, vote no, that's like, it's okay. Like, I'm just not a, a way to twist that. I just simply want to say thank you. And I realize uh, there's a kind of grief and excitement that can blend together. And you can both be excited about the future and take a deep breath and go, man, it's going to be hard. That'll, that'll be different. That, that'll be something that I... I miss. And I've appreciated in the ways we've talked and the questions that you've raised and opportunities to dialogue with you, uh, the ways you've kind of talked about, hey, I know like, I want to prefer somebody else. And I've just been praying for you that it doesn't feel like an either or, like it's either you or it's new people, but it feels like a both and, like that we're, that we're doing this together. And again, I think it is the continuation of your legacy, which I'm, I'm really, really grateful for. So um, if you're brand new and you're like, what is going on? There's a little document that's in the back that's pretty simply just explaining kind of why, what's behind it, some of the history, some of the frequently asked questions. You're welcome to stick around and listen as a non-member to our meeting and conversation. Um, and then our members will vote after the service. We're just gathered together in, the, in that space. And so I want to just honor you and um, say thank you. And, and I talked to Adam a little bit and I was like, man, I don't want that to sound like I'm trying to like tip the vote a certain way. Like now you can't vote no because I honored you. And like, man, you, to you totally can. This is not a, uh, a, a ploy or a strategy for me. It really is a genuine like gratitude. And I, th I think you know me well enough by now to go, That's, that really is where my heart's at. And so I'm really, I'm really, 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 really grateful. And um, again, a name, because it can't change us, there's not that much on the line, which I think it puts us in a really good spot uh, to go forward because Jesus is what we're about. And we can proclaim the hope of Jesus no matter what you call us, right? That name doesn't actually change 
on the inside. So um, I'm really, really thankful for that. So uh, members will stick around. Visitors, welcome to the family conversation. And uh, there are some people here that have walked with Jesus for a really long time. They'd be the first ones to tell you they're not perfect, uh, but they have been really faithful. And they are eager to see what God is doing here. And it's been fun to kind of stand with them to, to go forward. So, um, so thank you to, to our members. So let me just pray for that. Uh, and then for our time together, and then um, we'll engage this text. So Jesus, thank you for uh, being the lead pastor of our church. Uh, thanks for being the chief shepherd of the church. Thanks for being the head of the church. Even leaving our membership class a little while ago, like uh, you are what this is all about. And our pastors don't lead our church. We follow you. So we just say thank you. That it provides like a stability for us. It provides a hopefulness for us. It, provide something that's bigger than our strategies or our plans or our name or anything else that we could come up with. It's eternal. You promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against what you're doing in the church. So, so we just settle our hearts and we say thank you that you're trustworthy, that you're reliable, um, and that you are leading us. And then we just trust you all the way to the goal line here. Uh, if this is not what you want us to do, Holy Spirit, would you make that clear? Or would you turn us and direct us somewhere different? And would you have us either slow down or uh, take a different direction. So we, we'll submit ourselves to you and do whatever you tell us to do. We trust you all the way. So, so I pray for help. And, and actually, that, that's not my plan, but that's probably a help, helpful transition to this text. Because uh, the text tells us that we can trust you. And like Rob prayed, sometimes we struggle with that. And our experience sometimes doesn't match these um, beautiful and simple and extravagant promises that we see in your word. Uh, so would you help us to trust you? Not just for name changes, uh, for our kids, for our grandkids, for uh, the cells inside of our body, for the sadness that we feel, for, for the panic that is so pervasive in our hearts, for, for the anxiety and the shame that is such a common companion, uh, would you help us trust you? And would you speak to us the truth of this passage in ways that help us know how to carry those things that you've entrusted to us in light of your goodness and your mercy and you being a good father? So, so I pray for that kind of help. You're good. We love you. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, this is where I wish I like was a little more of a peppy guy. I feel like it's like the worst. Like a, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, I feel like it's like the most downer announcement ever. Um, but I think it'll put us in a good spot going forward. All right. Hey, let me uh, full disclosure. Let me say something. Let me ask that my family not stand up and testify, or our staff not stand up and testify. Here's what I want to share with you. I tend to overcomplicate almost everything. You might even go like, I oh, know, dude, I just heard this announcement. Like, come on, get on with it. Like, it's like uh, a way that I'm wired. It's a defense mechanism. It's, a, I think, maybe a strength in some scenarios. But I tend to overcomplicate almost everything. And some of it is because life is pretty complicated. And there's lots of things about how we live and how we relate to people that have lots of edges to it. And so we don't live in a simple binary either-or kind of world. There's a ton of both and. Now, there are some things that are really clear and simple, right? There's one true God. Scriptures would tell us. There are things that are black and white, simple, very clear. There's one way to salvation and trusting in Jesus. There are some things that are not blurring in both ends. They are either ors. But most of our life and our experience really is fairly complicated. And so the beauties of your story, the complexities of your story, have me oftentimes slow down and kind of try to engage with you and think through what it means to kind of be in your shoes and how to go forward. And when it comes to leading our church, Again, I just tend to overcomplicate almost everything, thinking through the different layers and the different angles and what could be and what could not be. Some of that is like a childhood defense mechanism to be safe, and some of it is just the way God's made my mind. 
I tell you that because this text, Jesus takes something that feels very complicated, and he just very simply says, ask. I can't think of something more complicated than prayer. Like in my 20 years of pastoral ministry, I think it's been the top topic that I've sat down with people and they've wrestled with, how do I understand prayer? So if God tells me to pray, but he's already determined the future, like what's the point? Ask that question. If God's sovereign and I'm supposed to pray, but I don't really have that much free will, or do I have that free will? And if I don't pray, does that mean bad things will happen or won't happen? How do I think about all that? What do I do with the things that I prayed for that I knew are in keeping with God's heart and will, and yet they didn't happen? What do I do with the things that were amazing and I never prayed about those? How come that happened? What do I do with all the longing and the loss and the spaces where I know I did this thing in faith and I said it in Jesus' name and I prayed repeatedly and it just simply didn't happen? These are the conversations that I've had for 20 years that are so complex. And they're so complex because it takes the entire Bible to actually tell the story and answer the question of some of the whys that you're asking. Why is it that God sometimes waits to answer really good, beautiful, life-giving prayers? Why is it that he seems to never answer some of them in this life? What, what do I do with passages that say, if I had enough faith, he would do it? And so does that mean there's some sort of like shame in me if this person didn't get healed or if, if I didn't actually overcome this situation? Like, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of complexity. So, so I think I come by honestly that I tend to overcomplicate almost everything. But, but this feels in a particular way a pretty complicated topic. And again, the things that you're carrying, I probably won't be able to address this morning because they are pretty complicated. In fact, you need the entire scriptures. You need to start in the Garden of Eden to see God making promises and to see a deceiver that comes in to twist and distort. You need to understand that to understand prayer. You need a guy like Abraham who God makes promises to that waits a really, really, really long time to fulfill them. You need the children of Israel who are in slavery for 400 years. You need a guy like Jacob who wrestles with God. You need a guy like Job who the book opens up with him making sacrifices and praying. And then he begins to have the bottom fall out when it comes to suffering. You need women who have closed wombs. You need wars. You need famine. You need plague. You need prophets. You need the Psalms. They give this visceral language to how do we cry out to a God and say, I don't even know if you're here. I know that you care about this and you're not doing it. I've been praying. Are you even listening? Are you even there? Are you asleep? And God ordaining these 150 templates for us to give language to our complicated hearts. You, you need the Psalms. You need the Proverbs. You need Jesus praying. You need Jesus praying in the garden. You need him praying in the upper room. You need Paul's Prayers. You need the book of Revelation where you see martyrs around the throne who actually God kept his promise to them and yet they die. You need the book of Hebrews where you see that these people who are faithful, these heroes of the faith who were sawn in two, who were burned alive, who lost everything. You need all of that to make sense of the complicated questions when you simply say, why doesn't God answer this prayer? The whole scripture, I think, is aimed at giving you texture and complexity for that. And yet, in this passage, Jesus aims at something so simple and clear. It's, it's like jarringly unnuanced. It, it's so clear. There's no qualifiers. He just says, ask and seek and knock. And there's no like parentheses, unless, of course, he just says, do this. 
So Jesus wants in this passage to put in front of us the clear, simple command and opportunity to bring your heart to a loving father. And in fact, in this Sermon on the Mount, he's actually just talking about prayer at least three times, four if you let the anxiety passage kind of spill over into the way that you pray. In this one sermon, in three distinct places, he's talked about prayer. I think it's only enduring persecution that he talks about more, which there's probably a connection between those two themes. Jesus really cares about prayer. And every single time he talks about it, the the grounding or the foundation or the reason why he says to pray is always relational. It's to pray because your father sees what you need. It's to pray for your enemies because God's the kind of God who who loves his enemies. And in this passage, it's to pray because your God is not the kind of God who wants to trick you or deceive you or harm you. He's not evil. He wants to give good gifts to his children. Therefore, pray. So I'm going to fight the urge this morning to overcomplicate this text. I want this to just be a simple, life-giving, nourishing command to your weary soul that the Father wants to hear your prayers. Jesus says life in the kingdom is about us bringing our heart to God. He sees you. He knows you. He knows what you need. And he wants to answer your prayers. So here's what we're going to do. I want to give you just a little bit of context. And then we'll talk about the command of this passage. We'll look at verses 7 and 8 for that. And then we'll look at the contrast he makes. He makes a command and he makes a contrast. That brings up a couple concerns for us. And then he's going to end in verse 12 with this continuation. He's going to say, here's, here's what you do in light of that. Here's how you apply with the so of verse 12. So, so here's a little bit of context. If you've been uh, with us for a while, you've heard me say this every week. And if you're brand new, this is a paragraph in a larger sermon that Jesus is teaching. It covers three chapters in Matthew. We've actually taken a number of months to walk through it, but it would have been about 15 minutes the way it's recorded here. And in that section, what he's doing is he's talking about life in the kingdom. What it means he came to fulfill the law, what it means that he, he's the king, and how do we adjust our lives to who he is? That, that's what he's been talking about. And he's talking, he said things like hypocrisy is out of bounds because, because God cares about your whole heart. And it's not just enough not to have adultery. It's about lust in your heart that God can be healed and redeemed. And so, so he's been warning us. He's been instructing us. And we come to this last section. Last week we talked about the idea of like dangerous people. I think before that, it's like how you see yourself with like a log in your eye and a speck in your eye. So he, he's been talking specifically about how you see. And so we would say that that's the theme he's been on. This passage is about how you see God. Do you see him as the kind of God who when you pray for one thing, he deceives and tricks you? Or do you see him as a loving heavenly father? That's kind of the foundation question that's in this passage. And so it becomes like the application or the end of this larger section that you could run it backwards and say, you know, if you've been thinking about judging others, now you're asking, how do I judge God's character? If you've been thinking about dangerous people, now it just makes sense that he would bring us to a section to pray. You have these dogs and pigs. And actually, I can't resist, right? So you have dogs and logs, uh, hogs in this space. And now he's actually bringing you to a spot where he's saying, hey, would you just bring your heart and ask? Would you ask about those dangerous situations? So that, that's the text that we're in. And we'll come to verse 12 here in a moment, but I don't want you to see this before we get started here. Look in verse 12. He says, this is the golden rule. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, again, in 15 minutes, you would have remembered that in chapter 5, he said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he actually came to fulfill them. That's chapter 5, verse 17. So that becomes like a bookend. From 5.17 to 7.12, we've been in this section of what is it that Jesus came to do to fulfill the law? 
What does it mean to follow him and trust him? How do we think about the Old Testament and what it was pointing to? And what he's been doing is taking it outside the the outer expressions of the law into our hearts is what he's been doing. So that actually brings a great context for where we are because prayer is not a religious mechanism that we do where we pull some levers and push some buttons and follow some formulas and then God is owed us a response. Instead, it is this relational thing. And and the fulfillment that Jesus said he came to do in chapter 5, verse 17, we would imagine has part to instruct us and explain to us what's happening in this section. So so here's the command. That's the context. Here's the command in verse 7. He actually gives three, but I think they're super similar. He says this in verse 7 of chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Unqualified. No asterisk, no parentheses, a simple command to ask and seek and knock. And maybe there's an elevation there. If he's right there as a father to a son, you would just ask. And if he wasn't in the room, you would go seek him. If he was behind closed doors, you would knock to get your father's attention. Maybe there's like an escalation there. But it's simply the same command. Hey, ask your father for what you need. And then he he gives this reassurance. If you ask, it will be given. And if you seek, you will find. And if you knock, it will be opened. And so it actually is jarring to us, but like Rob prayed, because of our experiences don't often match that. So he says it again in verse 8. For everyone, everyone, regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your religious experiences, for everyone, and we would say in the kingdom, who's following the king, right? It's a kingdom sermon. So he's not saying if you have these people that are rebelling against God with their whole life and say, I hate God, and they ask in his name, he's going to do whatever they want. That wouldn't make any sense, right? This is people who are following the king. They're inside the kingdom. Everyone who's trusting Jesus, we would say now, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Anytime you see three commands in a row, and then you see exactly the same thing repeated, you make a couple conclusions. One, this is really, really important. And two, it might be hard to hold on to. It might be hard for you just to hear it and accept it. So, so the teacher here repeats it just so, just so you get it. So let's just stop for a second. Maybe in your life, there are reasons and experiences and spaces where you struggle to believe that this could actually be true. Because you have asked and you have sought and you have knocked and it doesn't seem to be changing. Or, or maybe, maybe someone else asked on your behalf and, and then they said things about your faith that blocked them. I mean, it can be really, really confusing. Can you just think for a second, what is it about your experience, about your understanding of God, about what you think you deserve, about what you think you're owed, either on the shame side or the pride side, that makes this passage hard for you to believe? Uh, and maybe you would just ask it like with your life, like, is your life showing that you're just eager to ask and eager to seek and eager to not? So if your life isn't doing that, What's keeping you? Is it a relationship? Is it painful? Is it confusion? Is it your past that you don't feel worthy? Like, what is it that keeps you from asking? What is it that keeps you from seeking? What is it that keeps you from knocking? Just, just take a second. You just give name to that. And I would guess there's as many things as there are people in the room. There's a lot, lots of things. And so we have a hard time with the passage. And Jesus, as a good teacher and as the one who loves us, understands that. So he now moves from this command, which we have a hard time to believe, to this contrast. So hold on to what it is that you're struggling with and just kind of name that. And then move into verse 9. He says, there's a a contrast that I want to make. All right, let's just think about human terms 
for a second. Think about you as a parent. And I know we have lots of broken homes, lots of jagged relationships, lots of pain that we've caused and has been caused to us and our families. But he's talking about like in a perfect world or or even like a, a more than just evil world. This is the way fathers relate to their children. This is what parents normally do. So, so, so which one of you, as a parent, if your child asks for bread, will give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, will give them a serpent? Here's the contrast. If then you who are evil and finite and, and, and you actually have selfish motives and you have wounds and you have trauma and you have places where you're broken and you have a sinful heart that actually is bent on your own pleasure sometimes. If you as that person, if you know how to give, give, give good gifts to your children then how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you gifts to those who ask Him? The Father who is perfect and holy and loving and holds together all wisdom and power, who's moving towards us even as the one who's speaking this passage is one who would live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. This loving, gracious, powerful Father. Here's the contrast. If you, when your kids ask for bread, you don't like, trick them. You don't manipulate them. You don't, you don't give them something that looks like bread only to after you give them something that would harm them if they tried to consume it. And you don't, you don't give them snakes that are dangerous and scary when your kid's asking for fish to eat and be fed by. You, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't do that as a parent, right? Sociopath set aside. You just wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. So why is it then, in the contrast, that you think your father would do that? Why, why is it when you ask and seek and knock, do you wonder or assume that what God is giving you is actually a stone? Or what he's given you is actually a serpent? And here's the deal. We just have to be honest. We actually wonder about that. When the things that we pray for don't happen, when they feel really heavy, like stones, and they feel really scary, like snakes, it's easy for you to connect dots and say, I prayed for something good, but God gave me something bad. Now, a couple of qualifiers, right? So we know this can't mean anything you ask, God is bound to do for you, right? Because our wills would counteract each other and there would be chaos. I thought about even like that movie Inception. It's been a while since I saw it, but I can remember this scene where like the city's like folding in on itself in some weird ways. Like reality would just be bananas. If like you prayed something and I prayed and countered that and and so let's just talk about like a, like a couple who's dating and one's praying to get married, that one's praying to find grace to break up. And you go like, well, well now what do you do, right? So God, God is not incumbent to answer every single prayer. We, we kind of know that. And we know that we ask for evil things or we ask to be a billionaire all the time or we ask to be the most famous person. We're like, that's not really in keeping with God's heart. He doesn't really want to give you that. But when it's like a baby, when it's healing, when it's resolution in a relationship, those things we have a hard time understanding why God wouldn't want to answer. And our assumption is if I ask for bread and it's heavy, it must be a stone. If I ask for a fish and, and what I'm experiencing is scary, then it must be a snake. And Jesus is saying, Oh, your father's not that way. Now, it may not look the way you thought, it may not be the way you expected, it may not have all the texture and themes that you were longing for. But what he rests our heart in is that God is not an evil God who seeks to mess you over and trick you and get you thinking that he really loves you and get you on the front line and then pull back and have you be destroyed. He's actually the kind of God that when you ask for bread, he wants to give you what is nourishing. And when you ask for fish, he wants to give you something that would feed your soul, even if the way it looks 
is a little bit different. It's a really interesting illustration. Luke 11 has a real similar one. In that one, he says, anyone who asks for an egg, you wouldn't give them a scorpion. There must be some weird kind of desert animals in the first century kind of in Palestine, right? And there must be some sort of eel fish that looks like a snake. And he must be talking about these little bitty loaves of bread that look like rocks. He's saying, he says, we have a hard time actually interpreting what God gives us. And we kind of do like, hey, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, and then it's a duck. And so we go, if it hurts, if it's hard, then it must be a stone. If it's difficult, then it's not what I asked for. It must be a snake. And what Jesus is doing is saying, oh, no, 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 your father's not like that. And you may have a hard time interpreting what's going on, but don't assume that that thing that's heavy is the stone. He promises to give you bread to nourish your soul. And don't assume that thing that's scary is a snake. And it might, it might look like something that you would never ask for. It might look like something that, that feels really dangerous and overwhelming. But, but the, far, the, the heart of the Father is to say, no, 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 it's not a snake. It's a fish that would feed you and nourish you, even if it looks quite a bit different. Jesus is saying we have a hard time interpreting, and we have a hard time assuming the heart of God. Because some of his commands, let's just be honest, they feel really heavy. And some of what he asks of you feels fairly scary and overwhelming. And so some of what he actually kind of plays out in our world feels like it's a character that you question. And you look around the world with suffering and go, man, if this is the kind of God who leads this kind of world, I'm not sure I trust his character. So, so his care, his character, and his commands sometimes feel really, really heavy and really scary. And what Jesus is doing in a very simple way is saying, hey, hey, I know you have a hard time interpreting what I'm giving you, but it's not a snake. And, and it's not bread. Or it's not stone. It's, it's bread. And in those spaces, there's this spot where we stop and go, well, then what do I do with this? How do I hold this thing that's so heavy? How do I encounter this thing that is so scary? And it brings us into these concerns. What do I do when my experiences in my life don't match what the Father has said. And again, I don't want to overcomplicate it. Jesus simply says, you can trust the heart of the Father. You may not be able to understand exactly what he's doing, but he's not doing you evil. So you pray this thing that like, you, you know is a good thing. So, so for the womb to open, for the disease to go away, for the relationship to be healed, for the job to come back, and you pray for things that you know are in keeping with God's heart, and he seems to delay those. Or not just seems to, he straight up delays them. And in that space, you have an evil one who whispers around your ear, if he's not giving it to you, it's not that he's waiting. It's not that there's another plan. It's not that there's something better for you. He's hurting you. Because what kind of a father doesn't give his children things they ask for? Flips the logic around on you. If a good father gives bread to his children when they ask for it, and what you're holding, you have a hard time understanding his bread, then this whisper comes from the evil one that he must not be a good father. And friends, you have heard that abusive voice subtly and continually your entire life. All the way back at the garden tree, we hear this voice. Hey, is there boundaries on you? God created everything and puts you in this paradise, and then he put boundaries on you? He told you there's certain trees that you can't eat? Really? Would a good father do that? Would he set all this up and make it so pleasing to the eyes and then tell you you can't have it? Aren't you designed for food? Aren't you made for that? Isn't that what a good father would do? And there's this whisper to our first parents who hear a good father always gives things that you want. 
And if you have a hard time holding and understanding it for what it actually is, then he must not be good. And this apple or banana or pear, whatever is on that tree, he says is liberation and freedom, the evil one says. But it's actually death and alienation and destruction, right? He interprets for you, the evil one interprets for you what you're holding all the time. This tragedy, this sickness, this illness, this thing that you wish was different, he's always interpreting that for you. Jesus wants to offer you a different interpretation. Hey, your father is not evil. That's the interpretation. And in this unnuanced text, he doesn't walk through every single scenario of how it could be that a delayed answer is actually loving. He just simply says, hey, I want you to trust in this moment that your father's not evil. He's not giving you snakes. He's not giving you stones. And I know it feels really, really heavy. And I know it feels really, really scary. But he's not ripping you off. He's not evil. You can trust him. Because when he feels untrustworthy, you stop praying. And the logic is pretty tied to the passage, right? If you're not sure he's good, then you wouldn't ask for stuff. If you're like, man, he's going to give me something jagged. He's going to try to trick me. I ask for a job, and he's going to actually do something that's going to harm me. I ask for a relationship, and he's going to put me in an abusive situation. In those spaces, we stop trusting him if we think that he's evil. So what's God doing deeper than this, right? What's actually happening inside of this as we think about bringing those concerns to him? And I think you just stop and ask, who is the one who's telling you this? And what would he ultimately do? Jesus is the one teaching us this. And with the gap, these gaps between our teaching in the scriptures and our experience, the enemy offers you an interpretation there that God is evil. But Jesus says, oh, no, no, he's not evil at all. And then he offers us another alternative to fill the gap in. And it simply is this. It's his love and character and provision provided for us on the cross. He came to fulfill the law. And the way he's going to fulfill that is by dying on the cross in your place to make all the evil untrue, to actually heal all of the brokenness, to take all of your sin and give you not jagged gifts, but the best gift ever of reconciliation to the Father. Even in Luke's passage, it ends this thing with what he gives you is actually the Holy Spirit. He he gives you himself. What he gives you in the middle of your chaos, in the middle of things that are heavy, things that are scary, is actually himself. And so in the gap between what we pray and what we experience, what Jesus is exhorting us to very simply is to put the character of the Father in that gap. And you know the character of the Father because his Son embodies that character all the way to the cross. So all of us have a category for like delayed answers to prayer, right? We have an understanding like there's this long arc sometimes. And so we have people again who are in their 80s been praying prayers for like 60 years for their kids. And they're faithfully praying daily for their children. And you have an understanding, hey, sometimes God takes a long time to fulfill his promises. And even have people saying, I may go to my grave before he fulfills this, but I'm trusting that he's going to. But that long arc is cross-shaped. That long arc is not just an arc of delay. It's a deliberate arc where God is bringing about redemption. And the cross is what shapes that thing. And it's the middle between our expectations and our asking and what we actually experience receiving. We fill in interpretively the cross of Jesus. We put in that space actually him doing us good, right? Which is what makes sense of verse 12, right? Whoever wishes that they would have something done to them to actually go ahead and do that to somebody else. Well, that's an interesting space to put that passage, but, but God is the one who does what we most need. There's a connection here to the golden rule and to the character of God. Even that word so in verse 12, the conclusion is this is the way God is, so this is the way you should be. 
The thing that you most need, you should actually expect from God. The thing that you want people to do for you, you should actually do for them. There's a connection and a continuity. And the continuity is not your good behavior. It's not you earning something. It's the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. Hey, there is a ton of mysteries in why God does and doesn't answer the way we want Him to. But you can trust this. God is not engaging your prayers with a lab coat on. He's carrying a cross. He's not just running experiments on your life to kind of see what you'll do. Because the Bible does say he uses suffering and testing and you ask for something and sometimes what he gives you is the desert. And you're interpreting that desert as a snake or as a stone, but it's not. It's actually where he sets the banquet feast in the wilderness. It's in that desert place that he actually most nourishes your soul. It's where he most cares for you when he strips away the other things that you're tempted to feast upon. And he just gives you himself There's nothing else that you could depend on and trust on. You're aching inside. You have nothing else to turn to. And it's in that space that Jesus nourishes your soul with life-giving bread. And it's where he feeds you with fish that you most desperately need. Not necessarily in ways that you expected, but in ways that have his design and plan. So a passage like Romans 5 is super important. It helps interpret for us a little bit, but it has this promise that in our suffering, God is producing perseverance and perseverance character, and that character produces hope. And then it says that hope doesn't disappoint. So even a God, a God who uses suffering, the evil one would say that means he's evil, but he uses suffering in ways that actually refine us and shape us and change us and nourish us. So the question then is not, like, why is God not giving me what I want? It's what's he doing in this space, and how do I encounter that as his good gift to me? And you go, like, man, there's some stuff in my life I can't call good gifts. Right? He gives you himself in the middle of that. His presence is the good gift. His love for you, his sustaining grace, his power in that space, his sustaining your faith in that spot, those are the nourishing things that you need that he promises to give you. He's not evil. He's not setting up suffering just to crush you. And in that suffering, as you experience hunger, he wants to feed you with himself. And he does that on the cross of Jesus. So so this passage is super simple. And it only makes sense because the one who is saying it would be the one who would ultimately go to the cross to provide the thing that you most needed. I think it's the best way to understand that text. It gets you out of the spaces where there's a ton of requirements on you to make it happen. He just wants to un-nuance, say, ask and seek and knock, and I'm going to give you what you need. And what we most need is him dying in our place to make a way for us to be reconciled and forgiven. And in that spot, we find the nourishment that we need. And the temptation is to interpret the things that are heavy, the things that are scary as stones and snakes. He says, oh man, let them actually feed your soul. If I entrust something heavy to you, would you let that feed your soul? Do not assume that it's actually evil. Would you trust the heart of the Father? And if he's giving you something different in the way that you experienced it or expressed it or desired it, can you trust that he's not messing you over? So the, so the closed womb, the loss of job, the cells in your body that are not the way they're supposed to be, can you in those spaces ask God, how do you nourish me in this? How do you help me in this? Where are you in the middle of this? And you can actually ask in faith for help to interpret these breads and these fish and to help help you fight against the assumption that they're actually stones and snakes that's a great prayer for you to ask for God to guard your heart in the middle of a fallen broken world that has all kinds of jagged edges ask him to encounter you in ways 
but actually put his love and his heartbeat in the middle of this thing. Because we would go all the way to the cross and we would ask, man, how do you interpret that event? What's more heavy than the crucifixion? What's more scary than the torture of the Son of God? What is more confounding and what would be like our expectation of justice and deliverance? Right? All of his disciples are struggling like crazy. Hey, it's not what we thought was going to happen. It's not what we thought the kingdom was going to come. We thought it came in power. And Jesus embodies for us and models for us that he actually meets our biggest need in that space of suffering. And then there's an application. If that's the way he lived his life and how he provided for you, it shapes and shades how you understand your experience. It's a cross-shaped interpretive lens to the gap between what you pray for and what you're experiencing. Because you're going to fill that gap with something. The evil one would love to give you lots of alternatives. Jesus puts himself in the middle of that. And he goes to the desert on your behalf. He actually walks that road for you and with you to feed and nourish you in the middle of all of your pain and suffering so that this simple, unnuanced command and invitation can actually hit your soul as a beautiful gift to say, oh friend, just ask. Ask and seek and knock and trust that what he wants to give you is informed by what he already gave you in the redemption that he provided for you on the cross. If that's the case, man, you can trust him for everything else that you need, Romans 8 would say. It doesn't answer all your questions, I get it. You need the whole scripture to answer the complicated question of the thing that you're holding up, like why you're struggling to trust him. But would you go back to that place and ask, in this moment, Jesus, would you help me interpret this tragedy, this loss, this suffering, this pain, this doubt, this confusion, this shame, this thing I'm, I'm holding on to that keeps me from wanting to ask? Would you ask him now in this moment to actually help you interpret that through the lens of what he's done on the cross? So, so the reason why I take communion every week is to put that lens in front of you to remind you of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. To say, hey man, this is the beginning place of everything. This is where our faith begins. And it is the answer to the question of, is that a stone? Is that a snake? You go, oh no, no, he didn't give you stones and snakes. He gave you himself. He gave you your broken body and shed blood to redeem you and reconcile you and promise to be with you. And you can sit in that space and trust him in deep, deep ways. So Christians, I would invite you to take communion with this thought in your mind of where you struggle to ask and seek and not, and ask him to connect the dots for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take communion. You can sit in your seat and you can pray. And I say that not to like push you away. I actually would love for you to trust Jesus, but, but communion is for those who are saying, this is my uh, hope is what Christ has done for me. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're ready for that. If that's the case, man, I'll be up here in the front. would love to talk with you. But there's prayers in the back of that worship guide that you were given would help you know how to pray in this moment to ask God to give you help. But you could also pray, hey, I'm struggling too. God, I'm not sure if you're good. And you could ask him to speak to you. And you could seek him for answers to the things that you've wrestled with. And you could knock on the door and ask him to come and sit down with you and speak to you even in this moment. You could do that now in the room. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll take communion. And as we do, would you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you a cross-shaped answer to the questions you have about prayer. Jesus, would you come now in this space and would you help us? Would you speak to us the truth of what you've accomplished for us on the cross in ways that our hearts can be reconciled and redeemed? And not just like for one time, but continually. And I want to pray right now in specific ways uh, that evil one isn't absent in this space. So he is even now interpreting for people 
this answer is too shallow, this answer is not adequate, it doesn't match your pain. God, would you come and speak the complexity of the cross to the complexity of their situations where you held justice and mercy and wrath and, and goodness, where you held those things that were so complicated, you held them together in the sacrifice of your broken body and shed blood. I pray that would begin to speak a better word to their space of suffering and doubt. So, so minister, Holy Spirit, to the complex places of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.